Hi everyone, this is Brad. We're hard at work on a series of new episodes for the fall, and so this week we'll be re-airing a shortened version of a very topical episode we first ran almost a year ago, in October 2016. At the end, we'll update you with everything that's happened since then. On Friday, October 7th, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence released a statement, and it was a pretty stunning announcement. Barely two and a half months after a cyber attack was revealed on the Democratic National Committee, the Obama administration laid the blame at the feet of Russia's President Vladimir Putin with a strongly worded The U.S. government publicly blaming a foreign country for attacking a U.S. entity. That's an incredibly rare thing. I was surprised when I saw the statement come out, uh, even though it's something that uh, private cybersecurity experts have been talking about for a while. Uh, the government formally blaming a foreign entity has only happened a handful of times. And specifically here, the U.S. was accusing Russia of hacking the Democratic Party right as voters prepare to go to the polls on November 8th. It's a scary prospect. Could hackers tamper with or even obliterate our votes? So here's my question. We are so close now to Election Day. And you can tell because that's really all you see on TV right now. So how do we know for sure what we think we know about these hacks? This is a perpetual problem in cybersecurity, and it reminds me of the famous New Yorker cartoon that goes, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. But when you're investigating a cybersecurity breach, uh, nobody knows whether you're a Russian hacker or a Chinese hacker pretending to be a Russian hacker, or even a U.S. hacker pretending to be a Chinese hacker pretending <laughs> to be a Russian hacker. <laughs> or as Donald Trump put it so delicately. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia that broke into the DNC. She's saying Russia, 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 but I don't, maybe it was. I mean, it could be Russia, but it could also be China. It could also be lots of other people. It also could be somebody sitting on their bed that weighs 400 pounds, okay? And how is the U.S. or anyone else for that matter so certain that the Russians are trying to hijack our elections? What should an ordinary voter do, and should we even care? I'm Aki Ito. And I'm Jordan Robertson. And this week on Decrypted, we're going to take you inside the hunt for the people who hacked the Democratic National Committee. It's a sordid tale of how two of the world's great superpowers have found themselves locked in an escalating information war just weeks before millions of Americans go to the polls. And the stakes, they really couldn't be any higher. Not only is this the most divisive election we've seen in recent memory, with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump advocating for completely different visions of America, but also hanging in the balance is the democratic process itself. What happens to a country's sovereignty in the age of the internet? Our story today starts in April, when the IT staff at the Democratic National Committee noticed something a little weird going on in their network. For our non-American listeners, this is the official organization behind the Democratic Party, the DNC. And the IT staff there, they escalated their concerns to their executives, and a cybersecurity firm called CrowdStrike was called in to investigate. So CrowdStrike is one of a small group of digital forensics firms uh, that uh, really all they do is investigate data breaches. And you know, they went in, they installed software in the DNC servers, essentially allowing them to spy on the spies. And it didn't take them long to pin the attacks on true groups of hackers associated with the Russian government. They called these groups Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. 
cozy bear and fancy bear? Is this some kind of industry inside joke? Uh, yeah, the cybersecurity industry uh, has a lot of kind of goofy, funny names for groups. They're thematic, uh, often associated with a region. Uh, some others are called Deep Panda and, and things like that. <laughs> I love that. Then CrowdStrike closed all the security holes that had allowed the attackers to breach the DNC servers and so the hackers wouldn't be able to read the staff's emails anymore. Now, normally, you don't really disclose this kind of thing <laughs> unless you absolutely have to. It's certainly embarrassing for the DNC, especially when, as we learn later, they were warned about their network's vulnerabilities and ended up ignoring those early warnings. But the DNC may have had a hint that some of this information was about to be leaked onto the Internet, so they dropped this bombshell. But first, the Democratic National Committee said today Russian government hackers have penetrated its computer network. Breaches by two separate groups allowed hackers to access emails, internal chats, and opposition research. Democrats have compiled on presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump. That's PBS NewsHour reporting the hack on June 14th, the day this all became public. And it hit the U.S. political system like a bolt of lightning. People were furious. How dare Russia try to mess with America? That type of thing. And then, one day after the DNC announcement, someone or a group of people who go by the name Guccifer 2.0 came out in a blog post and basically laughed in the DNC's face. This person was like, no, you idiots. I am the lone hacker that infiltrated the DNC, and this had nothing to do with the Russians. And Guccifer 2.0 released a bunch of documents that he claimed he had stolen from the DNC as evidence that he was behind it. And from there, it was chaos. Was it the Russians? Was it some loner kid who had too much time on his hands? And that's when CrowdStrike called in this guy for help. My name is Mike Buratowski. I'm the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Services at Fidelis Cybersecurity here in Maryland. I lead a incident response team of about 30 individuals and we've handled some of the largest breaches that have have occurred over the past decade or so. So I've known Mike for several years now, and he's a really interesting guy. Used to be a cop with the Montgomery County Police Department in Maryland, and he looks like an ex-cop. He's got the short cropped haircut, solidly built guy, very friendly and uh, very genial. Even before his time in the private sector, he had this long experience of tracking down criminals. Mike's now an incident responder. In cybersecurity speak, that means he flies out at the drop of a hat to companies that believe they've been breached, and he helps investigate and fix their networks. So like the computer nerd version of CSI or Law & Order. Right. And Mike at Fidelis, his job was to independently verify the group of people who attacked the DNC. And this cybersecurity version of the whodunit investigation, it's called attribution in the industry. And CrowdStrike had asked Fidelis and two other firms to check their work. So, so we had, um, you know, we got five pieces of malware. We had a team of four reverse engineers. That's all they do is reverse engineering. So we had them bang on it. <laughs> Jordan, I think we should explain this to our listeners. Sure. So CrowdStrike sent Mike's team five files of the computer code that was on the DNC servers and was responsible for stealing information from the emails. And the job of Fidelis and these two other firms was to look at this code in what's called a virtual environment. Like a parallel universe. Right. It's a simulated computer system where the code can't do any damage on the real servers. Hackers use all kinds of tricks to prevent their malware from even opening in that kind of hall of mirrors. 
So a key job of an investigator is decoding all of those techniques to see how the attack code actually behaves. Okay. And then Mike's team, they compared that behavior to documented code in the past that was linked to the two hacker groups associated with the Russian government. And CrowdStrike called these two groups Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. And the clues surfaced immediately. You know, really, there were a couple of things that, that we looked at. So you look at the complexity of, of what the malware was able to do. The fact that it had the ability to um, basically uh, terminate itself and wipe its, its tracks, hide its tracks. You know, that's not stuff you see in commoditized malware, really. It kills itself. It kills itself, yeah. And actually, one of the functions within the one of the pieces of malware um, had had a terminology for essentially Harry Carey um, to, to kill itself. So this automatic suicide switch, this is something that's incredibly sophisticated. Right. I mean, this is one of the reasons that uh, Fidelis and CrowdStrike and the other forensics researchers were so taken aback by the, this malware. You know, there's a, there's a black market uh, for pre-built malware uh, on the Internet that even somebody like me can piece together. So like malware can be like Legos. But this feature of killing yourself to avoid getting detected, that's really complicated stuff. And that's when Mike's team knew they were dealing with real pros here. You know, there aren't a ton of people around the world who have this level of sophistication. And there were a bunch of other things that backed up this conclusion too. The the level of access that the malware gave the malicious user um, was pretty astonishing. Uh, it was also written very, very um, well. I, th- I guess elegant is probably a good way to to say it. It was not sloppy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and again, so you start looking at, okay, who would have had the capability to do that? And, you know, we, we talked earlier how, you know, yeah, you can have somebody on the inside do something, but they may not be the, the best at it. So you have, uh, you've got to have people who are a lot of experience doing it or a lot of training to do it. And um, it was it was a very complex piece of malware that the average person probably couldn't use. Uh, it's also not something that we've seen uh, out in the wild necessarily. It's very targeted uh, pieces of malware, um, very limited. You can't into, buy it on the black market. You can't buy these components. Not anywhere. that, no, not that we've come across. Okay, okay. So, so far we know that this attack was orchestrated by someone really, really good someone really, really experienced, and that immediately limited the pool of people who could be responsible for this. It really limited the pool of people to someone with the kind of resources with backing from an entire government. And on top of that, there were a bunch of things that pointed to the code being written in Russia. Yeah, some of these details are really interesting. So one of the most uh, fascinating for me is, you know, from the way the code was written, it was clear that it was written on a Russian language keyboard. And the dates and times that the code was uh, compiled was during normal business hours in Russia. And that's consistent with the code that's already been traced back to the Russian government backed hackers in the past. And that's not something that you can easily fake, right? Like change the timestamps or something? Yeah, that was my question too. But Mike said there are so many different things that you'd have to consistently change to successfully pull off that spoof. You're dealing with a situation that if it was a one-off, easier to change. You know, same same thing with, you know, you can change the date and time on your computer. Absolutely, you could do that, and it would potentially throw an investigator off. Consistently across five pieces of malware? Okay, you know, probably a little more difficult. Across X number of pieces of malware, across how many incidents, and to all have them point to the same place. 
And that's why Mike doesn't buy Trump's theory of this 400-pound man sitting on the bed orchestrating this incredibly sophisticated attack and why he doesn't buy Guccifer 2.0's claim that he was a lone hacker. Okay, is it a script kitty or is it somebody who bought a piece of malware or is it, you know, somebody drinking Mountain Dew and eating Twinkies in mom's basement? No, it, it, it really needs a level of operational discipline that you don't see really in the wild. And you're right, the number of people who could pull it off, it becomes dramatically narrower. So, Aki, are you convinced? I mean, <laughs> I think so. I don't know. I keep on expecting a twist, like you're, you're tricking me, like in Law and Order, when the guy who seems really suspicious turns out to be innocent in the end. <laughs> I like that. Uh, well, here's maybe the most important part, then. You need to look at the target, the victim of this hack, which was the DNC, And it later turned out a broad cross-section of the U.S. political system, everyone from lobbyists to lawyers to Hillary Clinton's campaign. And going back to Mike's background of working in law enforcement, you have to ask, who would have had the motive to pour this kind of effort into spying on key members of American politics? Sure. An opportunistic hacker, you know, putting a feather in their cap saying, hey, we, you know, we broke into the DNC. Okay, yeah, I mean, that that could potentially happen. Um, But then releasing the emails the evening before the convention started, well, then again, now now you're looking at it, okay, well, you know, that really smacks like an information operation. And here, I think we should remind our listeners of the chronology of the events that took place just a few weeks after the DNC announced the hack in mid-June. I mean, this was a time when the Republican Party was still in complete disarray, but things were looking pretty good for the Democrats. This was a time when Hillary Clinton um, was trying to solidify her support. And you have this forest fire raging on the Internet about this issue. You have WikiLeaks and Guccifer 2.0 publishing a stream of emails that turned out to be really embarrassing for the DNC at you know what couldn't have been a worse time for them. Yeah, like that one from when Bernie Sanders was still in the primary race with Hillary Clinton and a senior staffer at the DNC talked about how they should try to paint Sanders as an atheist, try to question his Jewish faith. And the party itself is supposed to be neutral. And that led to a lot of turmoil within the party. I mean, the Democratic convention that took place at the end of July That was kind of a mess, at least at the beginning. All these Bernie supporters were protesting and booing down speakers on stage. And ultimately, DNC chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was a rising young star in the party, she resigned. And bringing this back to our story today, like you said, Jordan, this really does point to motive. I mean, who would really want to introduce this kind of turmoil to the democratic process itself in America, which is, you know, really the sacrosanct thing Who would want to do this thing that would make you question the fairness of the system that we've developed over the years? Yeah, this project has been interesting to me because I consider myself a a pretty serious skeptic on a lot of these claims. It's, It's just way too easy for a hacked entity to throw out, oh, the Russians did this or the Chinese did that or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, kind of like this get-out-of-jail-free card when your company's been hacked, right? These really sophisticated, organized hackers backed by a whole government. If if someone like that tries to target you, what could you have possibly done? It's like when we reported about Yahoo's breach, which was this massive, you know, more than 500 million customer accounts getting hacked. We reported that the company's claim of the attack being state-sponsored, you know, isn't so ironclad. 
But this one with the DNC, after talking to Mike, after talking to all these other experts, Jordan, are you convinced? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. I mean, it takes a lot to clear that hurdle of you've got this piece of malware and this is evidence that the Russians did it. Uh, you know, but Mike will be the first to tell you this. Well, it's it's always risky. I mean, you know, when you're when you're you're doing attribution, you're really never saying a hundred percent that it's this person because you know, barring seeing somebody at the keyboard and actually doing it or a confession, you're you're relying on that circumstantial evidence. This all comes down to Mike's days as a cop. Can you prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the Russians did this? And his answer was yes. And now the U.S. government has come out and officially blamed the Russian government. And there are lots of reasons, potentially, for that happening. There are ways that the government can really know what's going on. Intercepted phone calls, intercepted emails, uh, human and signals intelligence sources, in a way that no private cybersecurity could ever match. Sounds a little sinister. Well, we don't know for sure, but here's what Rob Owens, who's an industry analyst at Pacific Crest Securities, told me. Nation states do hack. Uh, I think the U.S. government hacks as well. Um, It's a well-known fact within the industry that uh, uh, everybody's hacking everybody to some degree. So maybe the U.S. government was spying on Russia while Russia was spying on the DNC? (laughs) Well, we know that uh, both countries spy on each other all the time. But in this case, we don't know exactly what the evidence is, but it's fair to assume that that's the case. And that's why at the top of the show today, you called it an information war, like the Cold War of our generation. Exactly. So if we managed to keep our listeners till now through this complicated journey inside the DNC hack, first of all, (laughs) thanks for sticking with us. And second of all, I think the burning question everyone has now is, what's next? Okay, so Jordan, you and I are now in the present day. It's September 2017, and this story has evolved in ways we never could have imagined over the last 11 months. Well, since then, Donald Trump got elected. Yes, I I do recall that happening. And Facebook took a lot of heat for not doing enough to stop the spread of fake news on its platform. The subject of another great episode of Decrypted we ran in November last year. And there were quite a few reports connecting these fake news stories to Russian state-funded organizations. Right. Then the CIA, FBI, and NSA came out and reported that Russia's meddling was meant to help Donald Trump and undermine Hillary Clinton. And of course, special counsel Robert Mueller is now leading an investigation into Russia's tampering and possible ties to Donald Trump's campaign. It also turns out that Russia's attack went beyond an information campaign, too. My colleague Mike Riley and I reported in June that Russia's hackers actually breached the voting systems in 39 states. For example, in Illinois, intruders tried to delete or alter voter data. And the most recent twist to all this is this. Facebook announced that it found $100,000 in ad spending connected to fake accounts that were probably run from Russia that aimed to stir political controversy in the election. Which is to say, this, Jordan, is a story that never ends. Just when you think you've got your arms around the entire story, there's yet another development. So what do you make of the most recent announcement from Facebook on that 100 grand in, uh, in ad spending? 
it just goes to show that you know this Russian information operation went further than really anybody understood, and in ways that subverted, you know, the the very coin of the realm of Silicon Valley, which is targeted digital ads and. Uh, you know, how do you disentangle yourself from that system if you're Facebook or Google or, you know, anybody else that relies on them? I, but I, hang on, because a lot of people when this news came out said 100,000 is small potatoes. I mean, do you think it's a small amount or do you think that there's more that we just don't know of yet? There definitely could be more that we don't know about yet because the way that these things are tracked are, uh, you know, you go from known accounts that have been identified to you either by the, you know, the company or the U.S. government and you work backwards from there. But these networks are so vast, these ad networks, you know, that knowing really who is pumping money into these systems is, uh, is you know, a pretty challenging task. But the 100,000 signified something different to me. It's that one of my key takeaways from this information operation was that the Russians are learning. The hackers are learning. It's not that they have entered like a state of perfect execution. All of these things uh, were tests, were trial runs. And that's the really concerning thing. So in that context, $100,000 may have gotten them what they needed, which was, you know, just a set of principles to operate on for the next time. What I found partly remarkable was that the the culprit in all this was a shadowy organization based out of St. Petersburg called the Internet Research Agency, which is known for pushing Kremlin propaganda. And this was not it was actually not all that secretive an organization like these are known guys. There have been profiles in major media uh, organizations about about this agency. Had you heard of them and, and what do you make of their involvement? Yeah, I have. And, you know, I mean, there are there are armies of these kind of professional trolls, kind of quasi spammers that are not necessarily breaking the law, but are certainly acting in many ways as hackers, even if they're not breaking into accounts. And, you know, one thing that we can't forget is that in this current information ecosystem, it's all about headlines. And even if they're promoting fake headlines and half of your newsfeed are fake headlines that if you clicked on any any individual one of them, you would recognize as bogus. It's the aggregate is the effect. So if you see enough of these things, you know, fake news, slanted news, propaganda, it actually psychologically can have an effect over time if you see enough of it. Right. And that's the, that's the disturbing part is you're not right. breaking the law, but they're influencing the way you think about things and happens on a subliminal level. Right. Well, so we're talking about changing people's minds, but what about actually changing people's votes? So you mentioned uh, tampering with the actual voting systems before. Is there any progress in the investigation into into this aspect of it and whether Russia might be trying to do that as well? You know, one of the most depressing parts about all this is the short answer is yes. There, you know, the con- congressional committees are investigating. There's obviously a law enforcement investigation. The FBI is, you know, investigating uh, the hacks and, uh, you know, potential collusion with, uh, you know, the Trump campaign. And then, of course, there's a special uh, prosecutor. But one of the most depressing aspects is you talk to folks in and around the administration and you get the sense that this is this is something that is simply not addressed. You know, that that our current president refuses to acknowledge this issue to a degree that at the administration level, this is literally not being discussed. It poses such a problem because hacking hacking really isn't a partisan issue. Hacking affects everybody. It just happened to be targeted against Democrats. In right. this and if he's not bringing it up here, it probably means it's not a factor in the diplomatic relationship with Russia and, and their behavior won't change. Absolutely not. And when it comes to, to, to rigging votes, you know, everybody we talk to says the same thing. They're like, actually flipping votes is really hard. It, it, it requires a lot of work, a lot of hacking, a lot of precision in the endeavor. Changing people's voter registration is not hard and can cause extreme chaos. And you know, the lesson, again, I keep coming back to is 
all the data points that I've seen point to 2016 being like literally a trial run. It was the most effective, successful trial run in hacking history. Oh, but it was also a trial run. Like those 39 states that we talked about, those were not all super breaches. Those were like probes and tests. And can we change addresses? Can we change people's voter regs? Just there were tests. And that's the thing I think has really gone uh, really under discussed is that we've got these investigations. Everybody knows there was a big hack, uh, you know, but in terms of understanding the level to which this was not the best Russia has to offer. Russia is at our level uh, you know, when it comes to state-sponsored hacking. Uh, and this was kind of a trial run, and that's the scary part. Okay, so what do you expect to see in, say, Germany in the elections later this month or even in the U.S. midterms in 2018? Well, Germany is a great subject because they're experiencing the same thing that we do. And obviously their electoral system is different, uh, but Russia's getting better at this. And there's no doubt. I mean, there's no doubt that this was Russia. Everybody agrees that that's who it was. And the thing that I really fear, and I'm not one to fear monger when it comes to cybersecurity, even though it's an industry replete with it, uh, is when it comes to 2018, you know, a lot of these breaches have not been cleaned up. The 39 states that we wrote about, it would be naive to assume that those states just cleaned up their act and the infections are gone. Uh, I think the, the attackers are going to take the footholds that they created in 2016 and learn more and expand and tinker more and I mean, they didn't just get away with it. They were successful. They were rewarded, you know, with the biggest prize maybe in hacking history. You know, the presidency of the United States, you know, was at stake. Uh, so I suspect we're going to not just see more of it, but we're going to see more sophisticated tampering uh, if, if you know, the Russian state services feel it's needed. If that's, you know, and, and it could be – this is a weapon that could be turned in any direction on any political party. And that's the thing I think a lot of folks miss right now. Well, Jordan, you certainly haven't made me feel better about all this. So let's try to end on a high note here. What what can ordinary voters do to prevent hackers from either altering their votes, their registration records, or just to inoculate themselves from these disinformation campaigns that are now so prevalent on social media? Sure. You know, this is actually a, a, re it's a really good question because there's a really simple answer to a lot of this stuff. You know, the thing that concerns national security officials the most and concerned them the most in 2016, again, was not that votes would be flipped. That's really hard. It's that voter registration records would be changed in mass so people didn't know where they were going on Election Day or they were going to the wrong place or they did, their names didn't appear on the rolls when they showed up. Uh, you know, it's really simple. The, sa the same reason that these voter registration systems can be hacked is because they're online. And that means it's really easy for us to check, like literally a week or two before the election or on election day. Uh, you know, but if there's some lead time going into the election, let's call it a week or two, you go online, you check your voter registration information, as long as it's your same name, your same address, and a reasonable enough polling place, whether it's one you've, you've voted at before uh, or something in your neighborhood, as long as that looks fine, like that's literally the best defense against this stuff. Because if people go to the right places, it's really hard to manipulate the votes. As long as you're on the rolls, it's hard to tamper with these elections, but that, that's a level of kind of, uh, you know, diligence that, you know, not, not a lot of folks, you know, might, might be willing to employ, but that's the single best inoculation against that. And it's super easy. And that's it for this week's episode of Decrypted. Thanks for listening. We always want to know what you think of the show. Get in touch at decrypted at Bloomberg.net or I'm on Twitter at JordanR1000. And I'm at Brad Stone. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. This goes a long way to get this show in front of more listeners. The original episode we aired in 2016 was produced by Pia Gadkari, Liz Smith, and Magnus Henriksen. 
Today's edition was produced also by Aki Ito and Sarah Patterson. We'll see you next week.